You're listening to episode 38 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the origins of Green Arrow and Speedy. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I am so happy to finally welcome these very special guests to the show. They're the husband-wife duo behind the Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds podcasts, making their triumphant return after appearing on the Film & Water podcast, where they discussed one of my all-time favorite movies, Gross Point Blank. Please welcome Darren and Ruth Sutherland. How are you both? Hi, Ryan. We're great. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be here. No, I am glad that you are here, too. You have no idea. I actually, I went back and I checked. We set this up that you would be covering Green Arrow's origin with me back in the late July last year. And here it is. We're recording this in early May as we record. So more than nine months later, uh, I am relieved that I didn't do something to tick you off in the interim. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) It was just a nice carrot there teasing us along. (laughs) Good, good good to Fans of your shows, that is, fans of both Ron Randall and fans of Mike Grell, might be tuning into this show for the first time, and if that is the case, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And if you like bows and arrows, the stories in this issue are the two that you've really been waiting for. (laughs) I will get to Green Arrow's partner Speedy in the next segment, but first, Darren, we'll start with you. What is your Green Arrow origin story? How and when did you discover this character? Uh, It's a long history that I have with Green Arrow, and I'm really happy to tell it. So you'll have to stop me if I go on too long. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I've been a fan of Green Arrow way back into the 1970s. I grew up a fan of adventure, swashbuckling stories of any kind, books, movies, anything I could get my hands on. Zorro is a perfect example, and Robin Hood was a big character that I was a fan of. So when I first saw Green Arrow, I had to latch onto it. And for me, it was several things in the 1970s. I bought the Green Lantern, Green Arrow comics that were done by Neil Adams and Dennis Mm O'Neill. That was my comics introduction to the character. I would buy them just because Green Arrow was in them. And then, uh, of course, Green Arrow would show up as a backup story here and there throughout the 1970s. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, it was Mike Grell that started drawing in, in backup features later on in some of the DC titles. And then, of course, he was in that one lone episode of Super Friends, which was always my favorite since he was in it. And I had several of the Mego figures from that period of time. And Green Arrow, I have to agree with Rob Kelly on this one. Green Arrow was the best Mego figure in that line. And he was certainly my favorite. And I still have it today. Nice. So, and then, of course, my fandom didn't stop after the 70s, but that's my introduction, and I should probably let Ruth tell hers. I've been a longtime fan of Robin Hood. I loved the Disney animated film as a kid, and I read Robin Hood stories early on. And I fell in love with a book by Robin McKinley called The Outlaws of Sherwood, where she added some additional female characters, and Marion was such a good archer herself that she won the Golden Arrow in the archery competition, so that made a big impression on me. Uh, But my introduction to Green Arrow was through Mike Grell's Longbow Hunter, and I could not have asked for a better artist or a writer to really help me appreciate the best that this character has to offer. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'll just add, of course, between that point in time, for me, there was that one little four-issue miniseries of Green Arrow in the early 1980s that I snatched up. Yeah, the Mike Barr, Trevor Von Eden miniseries. Yeah, I was just rereading that recently, too. I need to reread it. I haven't reread it in a long time. And I, of course, have it in my lawn boxes out in the garage, but I, I got it on Comixology, so it's convenient. I need to reread it. There are things that I like about it and things that I'm kind of meh, but overall, it's pretty fun. It's an enjoyable read, I think, pretty quick. And then, thankfully, Mike Grell came along, So, and then Ruth and I got to discover and read those together. That was fantastic. We were discovering those together, bought them the year before we got married. That's oh, when we nice. started reading that. I first discovered him through, of all things, a t-shirt. I have mentioned the shirt on this podcast before. It was kind of a a notorious t-shirt because nobody believed that the t-shirt actually existed uh, until Al Girding discovered a picture of the shirt on Facebook, and I posted it there. Yes, I remember that story. (laughs) Yeah, and I had it early, mid-90s, like circa 1993, 94, and it had five DC heroes on the front. It was their big guns, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Robin, and The Flash. And on the back was Aquaman, Green Lantern, Plastic Man, Hawkman, and Green Arrow. And I don't remember where I first heard the name Green Arrow, but somebody, like one of my friends was like, oh yeah, that's Robin Hood. And I'm like, Robin Hood isn't part of DC Comics. (laughs) Um, Right. But shortly after that was when I was collecting comics, and I wasn't getting a whole lot of DC at the time, but one of them that I did sample was Green Arrow right around the end of Mike Grell's run, and Mm. right around the time other, you know, writers were coming in, like Chuck Dixon, Alan Grant, and it was right around the time they were introducing Connor Hawk. But after that, it was, I mean, it's, it's a controversial book, as many people hate it as defend it, but when I read Identity Crisis, I thought Brad Meltzer had a great handle on Ollie and used Ollie as sort of the POV character for that mystery, and I just, I liked the voice that he gave that character, and that made me want to go back and read more, so I, I did dig into Green Arrow's history a little bit more after that. Excellent. And speaking of that history, I'll give our listeners the publication history for this character. It is quite lengthy. Uh, I did not want to spend a whole lot of time on his history because it started in 1941 and basically never stopped. Uh, Green Arrow is one of like five DC characters, I think, who have never been out of regular publication for more than a couple of months at a time. And the others are Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman. Green Arrow debuted in More Fun Comics, issue 73, the same issue that saw the debut of the aforementioned Aquaman. He stayed with More Fun until issue 107, but after only his third appearance, he starred as one of the seven soldiers of victory in leading comics, issue 1. 
Concurrent with his appearance in More Fun, he starred in leading comics until issue 14. In 1943, while he was appearing in the other two books, he also took up a regular backup feature in World's Finest Comics, starting with issue 9. That lasted until issue 140 in 1964. But back in 1946, after 35 appearances in more fun comics, Green Arrow moved over to Adventure Comics with issue 103. He stuck with that book until issue 269 in 1960. But a year later, he became a regular member of the Justice League of America. In 1970, he joined Green Lantern's comic, not as a backup, but as a partner with co-headlining status. When that run ended after only a couple of years, Green Arrow got regular backup appearances in Action Comics. Later, he appeared in World's Finest again during the Dollar Issue era. In 1982, he started a regular backup strip in Detective Comics that would last until about the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths. In 1983, Green Arrow finally got his own series, albeit a four-issue miniseries that we mentioned, written by Mike Barr with art by Trevor Von Eden. After the crisis, Green Arrow was reimagined in the three-issue prestige miniseries The Longbow Hunters, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. And a few months after that, the new Green Arrow ongoing series kicked off, written by Grell with art by Ed Hannigan initially. That series lasted 137 issues, finally ending in 1998. Two years later, a new Green Arrow series kicked off, first written by Kevin Smith, and then Brad Meltzer, and then Judd Winnick. A new Green Arrow series began again during Brightest Day, another one started with the New 52, and yet another one will begin next month with DC Rebirth. So basically, Green Arrow has always been and will always be. He will never go away. And I like that. Yeah, absolutely. If you're a fan of the character, you got to like that. Yeah, and of course, you know, some eras are better than others. It's really nice the way you mentioned, and for me, it's really important because you know I'm a huge fan of Aquaman as well. That's how I first found uh, Rob Kelly through the Aquaman Shrine and then the Fire and Water Podcast Network. So it's always been important to me that my two favorite characters, Green Arrow and Aquaman, both premiered in the same book and they were both co-created by the same man. Mm Mm-hmm. And we owe a lot of people like me owe a lot of thanks to Mort Weisinger because it was thanks to the fact that he had several significant editorial positions in DC Comics that he was able to keep those two characters that he created in publication, even though they might have been in backup status. But at least we got to experience their stories for all those decades. Yeah, that's when nepotism goes right. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Were there any significant stories or details that I left out of the history? No, I think you covered it very well, Ryan. I, I mean, I can so. certainly chime in on uh, certain uh, ones, but we'll do that later. But you really hit it all. So, all right. yeah. Okay, listeners, we are going to take a short promo break. But when we come back, the secret origin of Green Arrow. Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com.
Secret Origins issue 38 is cover dated March 1989. The actual on-sale date, however, was January 24th of that year, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Remember, issue 1 of this series dropped in January of 1986. Secret Origins the comic is now three years old at this point in its publication history, and yet this podcast is just under a year old. The cover to 38 was penciled by Tom Grinberg with inks by Dick Giordano. The cover shows the two featured characters of this issue, Green Arrow and Speedy, standing on opposite rooftops in their contemporary costumes, while in the sky above, more iconic versions of the archers loom like ghosts of happier times. So what do you think of this cover? Ruth, we'll start with you this time. Oh, I love the starry night sky with the moon, the stars. It's a great background. And you described that so well. I love the way you described the background image, Ryan. And I really like that they had these two different versions because you think of Green Arrow, besides the original creators, of course, the significant people who really fed it being Neil Adams and Mike Grell. And we sort of get both of their versions here because that's sort of the Neil Adams version in the starry sky and then Mike Grell's version uh, there on the rooftop in the forefront. And uh, I think that's the Seattle uh, Space Needle mm-hmm. in the background there, illustrating that this is from Mike Grell's period of time when he's based in Seattle instead of in Star City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like you, I really like the background image. What's almost like a serpent type of effect because it's not done in blacks. It's sort of in a washed-out purple starscape background. That image looks so good, but I think it almost overwhelms the characters in the foreground. The more modern versions, that is to say, the Mike Grell version of Green Arrow, look so small by comparison. I wish the layout of this were a little bit different, and uh, I don't know, I wish he was a little bit bigger. I wish he actually looked like he was part of the foreground, like he was part of the focus. Because this one, I think, the in-color versions of Green Arrow and Speedy almost look like afterthoughts compared to the background. But then again, it's the origin. It's about the character's past, so... You bring up a lot of really good points, and I hadn't really thought about it myself, except that, like you, I love the background image the most. That really looks dynamic, and that's a big thing for me to say because Mike Grell's reimagined Green Arrow, even though I was already a fan before, Mm -hmm. his reimagined hooded Green Arrow has certainly always been my favorite, Mm -hmm. and yet I agree because I've never really cared much for this particular drawing of Green Arrow. I look at it and dismiss it, but the background image is stunning, and you're right. It certainly draws your attention, and it's much larger, it's much more prominent, and it's right in the center of the page. Yeah, I I definitely have a fondness for the hooded Longbow Hunter-style version of Green Arrow. I think that's probably my favorite, but the thing about the Neil Adams version, the redesign from the 60s and 70s, is nobody else ever really looked like that. It was such a unique, kind of one-of-a-kind, one-in-a-million costume design. Because I tend to think of characters in their default iconic status. Mm. And given that he was created in the Golden Age, but neither that original version nor the Mike Grell version, I don't think those are the icons. The iconic version is the one from the Silver and Bronze Age. I mean, the, the Mego toy one. So. Yeah, that's right. It was. And even today, the T-shirts that DC sells, Mm -hmm. they sold a T-shirt based on the New 52 Green Arrow when it first came out. But the other T-shirts that they put out for Green Arrow are almost always the Neil Adams design. Yeah, And you're absolutely right. But as far as Neil Adams and Mike Grell, they both are much nicer than the original Golden Age version. As much as I love the character and I've read lots of the Golden Age versions, that design of the character certainly doesn't grip me. 
in fairness to that Golden Age version, I have always wanted to see that version of a costume show up on the show Arrow. Like if he has to go to a Halloween party or something. <laughs> oh, that or he, he needs fun. a cheap, like homemade knockoff version of his costume. <laughs> I, I love that idea. Just as an Easter egg, I think that would be cute. So, with the red <laughs> boots and gloves. Yeah. We got the boxing glove Arrow. Surely we can get that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of Green Arrow? I think we are. Our story opens on a deserted island. A small green lizard basks in the sun. A disheveled and hungry-looking blonde man raises a homemade bow and shoots, but his arrow misses the small lizard. The lizard feels no threat and doesn't even bother to move until the man throws down his bow and runs toward it. The lizard then quickly scampers away, and the man falls to the ground in defeat. It is now sometime earlier, and we see the same blonde man on board a yacht, surrounded by beautiful women. We learn he is the young, wealthy businessman, Oliver Queen. They are all being entertained by Howard Hill. He is a professional archer who is often called the world's greatest archer, having won more than 200 competitions. He also used to work in movies as a producer and a stuntman. He did trick arrow shots, including the archery for the classic film The Adventures of Robin Hood. Oliver comments that he used to shoot as a kid when he would play Robin Hood, and Howard encourages him to take it back up as a serious hobby. But Oliver replies he's too much of a workaholic. This is his first vacation in six years. That evening, Oliver is flirting, but the lady he's with tells him he's had far too much to drink and encourages him to walk it off. Left alone on deck, Oliver stumbles and falls overboard. He finds himself washed ashore on a deserted island. Oliver looks up and sees the small lizard has gotten over its fear and returned to warm itself in the sun. Oliver gets a stern look on his face and draws back his bow. The arrow flies and this time kills the small lizard. Oliver throws up his hands in celebration and carries the creature back to his camp where he has his first hot meal since being stranded on the island. Some weeks later, a much stronger looking and more confident Oliver Queen watches as two men arrive on the island in a small boat. He sees their tending marijuana plants near the beach. He surprises them with his bow in hand and an arrow aimed directly at them. We're now in Star City. A TV news anchor is relating a story about two marijuana farmers who were turned over to the Coast Guard earlier that day. In a film clip, one of the men talks about a big dude with a bow and arrow. Oliver Queen is adjusting to being back home. His board of directors wants to meet with him immediately, but he's wanting to have some fun. He's joined an archery club and has rented a local golf course. There, the club members are playing a modified version of the game. Golf balls are mounted on sticks at each hole, and the various members of the archery club are using bows and arrows instead of golf clubs. Many are talented, but no one comes close to Oliver. He lets an arrow fly, and it strikes a distant golf ball in the center, spearing it on the end of the arrow. That night, Oliver is attending a charity costume party, and he's chosen to dress as Robin Hood. During the party, he's bored by the conversation and steps out onto the balcony alone. Inside, an armed man grabs the hostess and demands the attendees drop all of their jewelry into a bag. Oliver sees what happens and begins debating what to do. He thinks he can take the gunman, but what if he's wrong and someone gets hurt? Instead, he waits patiently until he sees the bandit make his escape. Oliver fires an arrow and pins the gunman's tie to a tree. The thief quickly pulls free and aims his gun in Oliver's direction. But Oliver has already pulled out his next arrow, and he's drawing it back in his bow. Then he realizes it's the arrow with a golf ball speared on the end of it. He lets the arrow fly, but the weight of the golf ball affects its shot, and it strikes the gunman in a very sensitive area. Later, as the police drag the gunman away, he exclaims, You wouldn't have caught me if it wasn't for that green arrow. The next morning, Oliver reads about the exploits of the green arrow in the newspaper. He's not sure about the name. 
and he has to contend with the policeman getting him confused with the Green Hornet and asking where Cato is. But he knows he had fun, and he doesn't have anything better to do. So the adventures of Green Arrow continue. All right. Thank you very, very much. Initial thoughts. What did you think about the story? You know, it's interesting. I had read this story many years ago, and I didn't remember liking it as much as I enjoyed it when I reread it in preparation for this. Uh, It's really quite a good version of the origin story. Uh, It has sufficient page count to really tell the story, flesh out the characters, give you everything you need to know. And the art is really quite good. It's um, inked by Dick Giordano, who was drawing the Green Arrow comic at the time. And, of course, it's scripted by Mike Grell. So it has a lot going for it. And honestly, I'm probably a little biased, but it's probably my favorite Secret Origins. (laughs) Ruth, what do you think? I would say I would enjoy the art and the approach to telling of the story, so especially how it starts out where two stories are unfolding simultaneously. There's you know what's going on on the deserted island intermixed with the flashbacks and the present day occurrences. I thought that was a really nice effect and took up you know probably the first ten pages or so with that approach. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mike Grell's done that sort of approach before, and it's really nice because he handles three different timelines at the same time over those pages, but you never get confused. Right. Well, there's one point where I think he does sort of slip up, and I think it does get a little bit confusing. I think it's on page nine. And this is where we get all three of the timelines, but they're not in chronological order. First, we see him on the cave. This has been sort of, well, it's not even the end, but it's just part of him living there on the island. And then he wakes up in his own bed. And this is the first time that we get him more or less in the present day after he has left the island, after he is kind of coming back. So he's had this nightmare. But then the last panel on that page is a flashback to him falling off the boat, sort of beginning his time on the island. So you're right. We do get the three different timelines. We get him on the boat before he falls into the water. We get him on the island struggling to survive. And then we get him after he has returned to Star City and kind of make the journey that will eventually make him into Green Arrow. And I think this is the one page where I was kind of like, wait, what order is this supposed to be in? Or I think when I saw him waking up in his bed because of the dark colors, that was the one time where I was a little bit confused about where we were. You know, that's a very valid point. And especially, we only read this on the digital version Mm. in preparation for this. I wish now I had gone out and pulled out my paper copy. But this is what I'm suspecting, because we actually saw Mike Grell do something similar to this on a Warlord issue recently that we just read. Mm. I think if we were looking at this with the two-page spread open, we would see pages eight and nine side by side. Yeah. And I think that it's those bottom two panels, the panel on the bottom of page eight when he's leaning over the railing and the bottom of page nine. It's sort of like an effect he did before when you you read across the top half and then you come back and read across the bottom half of these two pages. And I think it works that way. But it's interesting because you're right. When you look at it digitally, it does not flow that way. Yeah, I've got the digital one, but I'm also I'm looking at the paper copy. But the paper copy, there's an ad page between them. Oh, like they're like they would be on facing pages, like they would be like a double page spread, except there's a page between them with okay. ads on both sides. One is an ad for, uh, for what? Oh, it's a Nintendo. It's a Nintendo games, and then the other one is Hero Hotline, everyone's favorite. So, <laughs> well, if they planned something, it certainly got messed up. Right. Maybe yeah. it's all just a big accident. <laughs> So that was my only real complaint about the timeline issue. I felt like that was because it's actually it's the first time the the modern day story timeline begins. So it just felt like it was this weird 
like sort of overlapping. But other than that, you're right. Like the pacing was good. I thought like the page count was enough so that he could let the story breathe, give it some room, especially mm-hmm. in those early pages when we just see him silently stalking this lizard that is not going well. <laughs> no, I'm especially pleased with him because, you know, we, we listen to your show regularly and sometimes – I feel almost sorry for you know some of the guests because they're they're stuck having to cover a secret origin where they've packed in three characters and one issue and they didn't give any of them really sufficient space to tell the stories and of course that's always the lesser known characters that they did that to mm-hmm. which hurts it all the way around it's like I wish they had given all of them the extra page count so you could have really gotten a nice fleshed out origin story so I appreciate it here And then, of course, I also really liked, as we were talking before, Mike Grell's version is my favorite, but I like that in the very last page of the story, it's the Neil Adams version of Green Arrow that we see, which is quite appropriate because this is an origin story. So we shouldn't be seeing the hooded Green Arrow at the end of this story because that comes much later in his career. So Mm -hmm. I really liked that. Yeah, me too. I especially like page, I think it's 13, where you see him with his costume getting ready for the party. And in the background is the painting of Robin Hood on the wall. And I can spot that painting turns up in a few more pages later in the story. Mm -hmm. And then also I know it turns up in Oliver and Dinah's home in the Mike Grell version of the stories later on. So I like seeing that consistency. Yeah, I think that in the very, maybe it's the very first issue of the Longbow Hunters, Mm -hmm. they hang that painting up. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's featured quite prominently in that story. (laughs) Thinking about the art again, I I had to look up because I didn't know Hannibal King other than I'm pretty sure that's the name of a Marvel character from the Tomb of Dracula comics. Wow. So I looked him up, and he doesn't have a whole lot of art credits to his name, not according to Mike's Amazing World. Now, that could just be only up to so much, but I think this was his only penciling credit for DC on that website. He also inked a couple issues of Animal Man, but I don't know if he, he... did much beyond this. I think he did some art for Magic the Gathering cards. Mm. Um, but really, be- besides that, I mean, I definitely, I, I feel the heavy hand of Dick Giordano in this in these pages. I do too. I agree. That's, I'm really glad you looked him up because I meant to and I hadn't. And like you, I wasn't familiar with him. I appreciate the mention of Tomb of Dracula because that was one I loved as a kid and used to read regularly. So thank you for that reminder. But I, I sort of felt the same thing. I, I felt that I saw Dick Giordano in this, and so I wonder, you know, how much of it he really took over. But it's interesting to hear the background on the pencil. I would like to know more. Yeah, I, I looked up. I didn't. I couldn't find a lot more. So I don't know. Uh, in terms of the origin, it struck me that Mike Grell was writing a much softer, much easier going Oliver Queen than he was writing starting with Longbow Hunters. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, I mean, certainly the events of that story, and I mean, it was a mature reader's book, sort of, so it, it kind of painted a much more cynical and harder-edged version of the character, and this I, this doesn't feel like the same Ollie, which I think is actually good, and it shows that, you know, Grell could write outside of his typical character, that he could show different aspects of his character. But more than anything, I was surprised when I read this because I was so familiar with more modern interpretations of the character, which, like, I think when I think of, like, Green Arrow Year One and the character on uh, Arrow, the TV show, I think those versions of Ali's origin have borrowed a lot from the origin stories of Iron Man and Doctor Strange, which is that 
the character was very successful, but he was also, forgive the term, he was an asshole. <laughs> and and part of his origin story was having this moment that brings him low, and he has to kind of redeem himself. And his, you know, he, he had all the money, he had all the privilege, and he just, he didn't care. He, he was kind of a jerk about it. So becoming a champion of the people is part of not just his quest for justice, but for redemption. We see that with Tony Stark. We see that with Stephen Strange. And more modern takes on Oliver's origin see that with the origin of Green Arrow 2. But back then, like this version, it's really struck me. It kind of it took me back when he says, I'm a workaholic. I don't get out of the office much. I'm like, that is not the Oliver Queen I'm used to. That's right. Uh, I agree with that, too. That's very much sort of out of character as to how we read him now. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where... I know what you're saying because Mike Grell, even in the Longbow Hunters and the 80-issue run that he had after that, he almost – sometimes you see Oliver and Green Arrow and you can see the young, naive, enthusiastic hero show up from time to time. He can have these little lighthearted moments of enthusiasm and optimism and then he sinks back into the grit and the grime. And you almost wonder if, because Mike Grell had done a lot of Green Arrow in the 70s during the backup period, if he was dealing with this character that he intentionally aged because his Green Arrow in the Longbow Hunters is suddenly about 10 years older Mm -hmm. than the Green Arrow that he'd been writing before. And you really sort of see this older, more cynical man, but there's still a little bit of that younger man in him that comes out sometimes. Mike Grell had told a much shorter version of this origin story in The Longbow Hunters a couple of years before. And then a couple of years after this, he would tell a much longer version of this origin story in Green Arrow, The Wonder Year, which is a great little miniseries. And then, like you said, then you get the uh, Green Arrow Year One in the 2000s from Andy Diggle, Mm -hmm. which certainly uh, you can see the progression of the darkness of the character that you were just discussing. I want to get to those. The one final note that I had on the story, which is when he actually uses the blunted golf ball arrow. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cheap joke, but it actually it works for me. The fact that he shoots it and it's weighted down, and instead of hitting the guy in the head, it hits him right in the crotch. It's a silly sophomore gag, but I got to that point, and I kind of did, <laughs> did a very sophomore giggle. So. It's interesting. I was surprised to see that. I didn't remember that until I reread it, and I was surprised to see it because Mike Grell was not a fan of the trick arrow. Arrows. And yet, basically, what he gave us in this origin story was the origin of the trick arrows. Because you can see that, no, okay, well, this is why the green arrow thought to do the boxing glove arrow and every other arrow he created. And uh, I, I appreciated that. Like, oh, we got the origin of trick arrows as well. <laughs> Ruth, did you have any final comments on the story before we move on? Oh, it was enjoyable. So really a pleasure to revisit the origin story and think more about the character, you know, where the character came from. And then, as you were saying, where the character went to over time and seeing the growth and evolution over the years is really amazing. I'll mention one other thing just before we move on from this actual origin, which I also really liked the golf course scene where Oliver came up with this new version of the uh, golf game with the bows and arrows because we actually we were lucky enough to get to go to New Zealand once. And it's interesting because in New Zealand they have a game called Golf Cross, hmm. which is the name is sort of, I guess, comes from lacrosse. But they play on a regular golf course with a golf ball that's shaped like a football. And the greens, they have a hoop 
So you're trying to hit your golf ball through one of these hoops. And I was thinking, oh, this is a really great idea. I wonder if Mike Grell went to New Zealand and got this idea. <laughs> nice. Uh, looking at this double-page spread of the party scene, we get a yeah. lot of people in costumes. Ruth, you liked that scene a lot. I did. Did you spot some familiar characters there, Ryan? Well, the most obvious one sort of peeking out is the Joker, which yeah. doesn't look like somebody in a costume. That looks like the Joker. <laughs> looks a bit like Cesar Romero, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed. <laughs> we have somebody dressed up as Superman. Clearly not Superman. Doesn't have the body for it and also has lighter hair. He's talking to a woman. She seems like her outfit is familiar too, but I can't place what she would be dressed at. The woman on the far right, sort of closest to us, she's smoking. Yes. Almost looks like she's looking at us. Yes. Yeah. That's a good description. I wondered if that was supposed to be someone, and I couldn't think of who it was. So, I like the mask. It's a nice design. I really like the mask. And I'm getting the color palette, like the color design. She seems to have kind of lighter, lavender, almost pinkish hair. She's wearing a kind of purplish magenta outfit. The effect of her mask around her eyes it reminds me of what Psylocke from the X-Men looked like when she used her telekinetic powers. And she had kind of that purplish hair, so I don't imagine he's trying to draw like Psylocke into this story. It's from a different world, but I can't think of what else this would be. I'm glad you knew that much, <laughs> yeah. because that's really interesting. And Question. I love the big bowl of money there where they're collecting donations. <laughs> so homework assignment for any of our listeners if you can spot some more people from this little costume party, tell us who these people are supposed to be. There are numerous clowns, numerous different clowns. I don't know if that's a, there's a reason for that. Okay, what are some other good Green Arrow stories that you can think of? I mentioned earlier on the Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill stories, which have been collected recently into a Green Lantern, Green Arrow collection. I know I picked that up. It was wonderful to revisit those because while I bought many of those issues back in the 70s, they didn't survive my comics purge back uh, when moving to college. But it's been great to be able to recapture those. Of course, we've talked a lot about Mike Grell, so we don't need to talk about his run anymore. More recently, I thoroughly enjoyed the Brightest Day Green Arrow run, that 16-issue run that came right after Brightest Day, uh, where a forest had grown up in Star City was excellent. Mm. I would have loved to have seen that continue, but it was interrupted by the New 52, which I'm not a New 52 basher like some. I mean, we got a great Aquaman out of the New 52, but the New 52 Green Arrow has not been one of my favorites. It's been a very irregular title. So I'm certainly looking forward to retrying Green Arrow under rebirth here in the, another month or so. Right. See what a fresh start brings. The thing about the New 52, when they first launched that Green Arrow book, it seemed like visually they were trying to capture the aesthetic of Green Arrow from Smallville, from the TV show. That's what the character looked like in the comic. But by the time they did that, the show was over and they were already promoting the New Arrow TV show, which had more of a Mike Grell-inspired look. So there was this disconnect, and I felt like they were... They were just behind the game, and they were trying to capture the wrong flavor. And eventually, after like 17 issues, when they brought on Jeff Lemire to write and Andrea Sorrentino, I thought that was a great little run that they had. I really enjoyed the book then. I know exactly what you're saying, and I'm really glad you mentioned the bit about the Green Arrow initially looking like he was influenced by the Smallville version, because you're exactly right, and I hadn't really connected that, even though I watched Smallville for the whole 10 seasons and was happy to see Green Arrow in it. 
But uh, that costume and even the design of the character's face and hair were exactly from Smallville. Very insightful. And it's interesting because I know those first half dozen issues or so, uh, Dan Jurgens was heavily involved in writing and drawing them. And I sort of thought that he had a an interesting vision on of maybe where he was wanting to take the character. And I remember we had the chance to talk to him once at a convention, and he sort of felt that he got taken off the book before he really got to do what he wanted to. I would have liked to have seen. But I know uh, the version of with Jeff Lemire that you're talking about and how that was a really nice section, if you can pull that out as a sort of separate storyline. But what's interesting is the Green Arrow book all during the New 52 was just so erratic. It was, you know, they were constantly saying, okay, we just need to completely change this book and we need to completely change this book again. It's almost like you could take little parts out of it and say, you know, this is a nice few-issue run, but as a series, it really was erratic. Mm-hmm. Are there other favorite versions of the character or favorite runs that you think about when you think about your history with the character? My favorites might grill, so... <laughs> That's, I'm going to stick to that. I know the reason her favorite's Mike Grell, because every time we see him, he always talks about her being cute. Oh. So. <laughs> that hasn't influenced me too much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's how you get a fan base. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the Mike Grell run, too. I like that a lot. Uh, Darren, you mentioned the Brightest Day version. What I really liked about that version of, of what they did with Star City in creating this giant star-shaped forest right in the heart of the city... I thought that was an amazingly fun and creative touch to to make Oliver part of the urban setting, but also give him these kind of jungle or forestry roots and putting him in both worlds at the same time. I thought that was awesome. That was a great idea. Awesome is the right word, Ryan. I loved everything about that run. I mean, the imagination, the idea, the juxtaposition of the forest and the urban area, the secondary characters that were introduced were all fully formed and developed. It was a, a great little run and a shame that it came to an end so abruptly. I would have loved to have had quite a bit longer time with that. It was very good. And Ruth, you talked about how your favorite run was the Mike Grow one. I think at the time this issue of Secret Origins came out, I think this was between issues 15 and 16 of Green Arrow. So that was just a month or two after the story Here They Be Dragons, which you guys just recently covered on an episode of uh, Warlord Worlds. Uh, So thinking about the different Green Arrow stories that you've covered so far, Ruth, what is your favorite storyline that you guys have got to cover? Oh, what would be my favorite story? I love everything... With Shadow, like I would say every time she's part of the storyline, I'm very intrigued in how her past was revealed and her training and her outstanding skill with the arrow. And so those stories are the ones that speak to me very well. I know you always like strong female characters, Mm -hmm. as do I. That's uh, always adds a lot more depth to it. And I would chime right in there. The Here There Be Dragon storyline that we just covered was an excellent one with Shadow. It was great to see her come back. It was a four-issue, action-packed storyline, and I know, like Ruth, I really thoroughly enjoyed that one. Mm-hmm, me too. The character was criminally underserved on the Arrow TV show. I liked when they introduced uh, her. Absolutely. But, yeah. What they did with Shadow on the Arrow TV series was really quite horrible. Yeah. I thought they introduced her too quickly, and then it was clear. I was like, okay, this isn't going to be the same Shadow from the book. So when they ended up killing her off pretty quickly, I was like, well, that was kind of a waste of a good character. You could have called the character in the show any other name and saved Shadow for later. 
I agree with that too. I know we talked to Mike Grell about what happened with Shadow, and it's interesting. Mike Grell's quite a fan of the Arrow TV show. For those who don't know, the sketch of Arrow, the police sketch of Arrow that was used during the entire first season of the show, was drawn by Mike Grell. That's and right. And you'll hear occasion, yeah. And you'll hear occasionally during the first season, the character's never seen, but they talk occasionally about a Judge Grell. That's a tribute to him. Uh, And he's quite a fan. We saw him at Dragon Con one year along with Manu Bennett was there and Katie Cassidy was there. uh, And he was getting his photo taken with them uh, in the photo ops. He was very excited. Uh, But at the same time, he was very disappointed with what happened with the character of Shadow. And I could tell that there was something behind the scenes that had gone on with Shadow and why Shadow was killed off. But he was very professional and though you could tell there was something he wanted to say, he wouldn't say it. So something had gone on there and it's a shame that that character ended so abruptly. Yeah, that's too bad. I like a lot of the show, and it surprised me because I didn't think I was going to like the show. I really only tuned into it because I knew that they were going to be introducing Black Canary. The first couple episodes, I thought it let it, it kind of struggled. But once Oliver met Diggle, and re- well, once he basically let Diggle into his world, once they became partners on the same page, I felt like that was the first time the show sort of found itself. And I was like, okay, now he's not just this loner, and we're get, getting so much like sort of exposition. Now he has somebody to talk to. It feels better. And then midway through the season, once they let Felicity into their world and it becomes Team Arrow, that's when the story kind of gelled, and I really liked it from then on. Uh, the second season was awesome. Third season stumbled a little bit, and we'll we'll see how the fourth season wraps up. Um, I'm not quite up to date. I've only watched the first half of season four. I can tell that you and I think a lot uh, alike, and I'm not surprised about that because I can remember listening to your Flowers and Fishnets mm-hmm. podcast and listening to your thoughts about the Arrow TV series, and I agree completely. I was surprised at how much I liked the first season. I just felt they got more things right than I would have ever guessed they would. Mm-hmm. And while I was very disappointed with the character being too violent and killing people. I just felt like, well, you know, they got more right than they got wrong. The second season, they seemed to fix everything that had been wrong, and the show really was on track and, you know, firing away. The third season, I agree completely. I don't know how they messed up a season when they had Ra's al Ghul as their main villain. And uh, Matt Nabel did a great job in the role with what he was given, but he just didn't seem to be given very much. He never came off as particularly menacing or or anything, and I, I felt that season lost its way. This season, I think, has been much better than season three. Uh, up until two weeks ago, <laughs> and I won't tell you why. I know what you're talking but about. But I'm I've really had it, I've had it spoiled. Okay. For me. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I'm just like, oh, really? Give me a break. <laughs> If somebody wanted a quick little glance, at, I mean, this is a fun origin story, but Green Arrow Year One is one of my favorite just like superhero comics, like origin stories. I think that's just a really good read for a brand new, somebody new to comics who maybe has heard of the show or watched the show, but doesn't have a lot of familiarity. The art by Jock is beautiful. It's written by a guy named Andy Diggle, so of course they liked it so much that they named a character in the TV show after him. That would definitely be a high one, high on my recommendation list. And for you know people wanting the trades, the Mike Grell run has been collected. I think earlier this week, in fact, they released volume five, which I think gets up to like issue thirty-nine of the series. I think. Yeah, you think you're right. 
And I'll just chime in, as we talked about earlier with the uh, publication history, as you mentioned, 1941. So this is the 75th anniversary of Green Arrow. And it's really nice because uh, later in June, we're getting a Green Arrow, a celebration of 75 years collection that's going to span everything from the beginning to the new 52. So that should be a really great book to look into. And I encourage everyone to maybe give that a try. Yeah, I do too. That sounds like it's going to be a great little book. Clearly, you two both really love this character a lot. So what are your final thoughts? What should new listeners or new fans who don't know Green Arrow as much, what should they know about this character? Why is he so special? Oh, I think he's heroic. So he doesn't have the superhero powers, but he's really someone who is willing to fight for a cause, fight for people who need assistance when they're down. And of course, Dinah as Black Canary does as well. So just really like that they have heart and courage to go out there and help people. I like that a lot because uh, Ruth's absolutely right. And that's the reason we like Black Canary so much, too, is these are characters who aren't super powered, but they're superheroes. And we really like that. And sometimes Ollie has lots of money to spend and sometimes Ollie's broke. But Oliver is always out there fighting for the common good. Yeah, thankfully, that doesn't really affect his, his superhero gimmick. His motif. Like, uh, Batman would lose a lot if he was broke. You know, he would lose a lot of his gimmicks. Green Arrow, he can be, he can go cheap, and it doesn't really affect him that much. <laughs> That's right. He learned how to make his homemade bows and homemade arrows on that island, and he's good to go. Darren, Ruth, thank you very much for being on this episode. Uh, I had a great time talking to you. Where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, thank you very much, Ryan. We had a fantastic time. We've been looking forward to this. It was as much fun as we hoped. And certainly, we would love for your listeners to try out our two podcasts. We would love people to try out our Warlord Worlds podcast, which is devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell. And I think I've heard that name mentioned once or twice in our conversation. Yes. (laughs) And that podcast, we discussed Green Arrow, along with John Sable, and of course, Warlord. And then, of course, our other podcast, the very first one we started, is Trekker Talk, devoted to sci-fi bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the excellent comic series Trekker by Ron Randall. Uh, We uh, love it as well, and we would love for your listeners to give it a try. I would say what we always hear from people who try Trekker Talk before they've ever heard about Trekker is they always end up saying, oh, this is a title I wasn't familiar with, but I've listened to it. You got me interested. I bought the books, and now I love it. So give it a try. (laughs) I'll add that both of our shows are available on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can visit the websites trekkertalk.com and warlordworlds.com for links to our Facebook and Twitter feeds. And Ryan, just for you, we'll tease on your show that we actually have a third podcast in the works. (laughs) Yes, that will be coming very soon. So keep an eye on our social media outlets for those other two shows, and you'll find out when it's available. I don't have time to listen to any more. You're killing me. (laughs) Well, that is very exciting. We really wanted, we talked about it, we wanted to take the opportunity to tease it on your show because you've been a, a great friend that we've made through this podcasting world. And we love your shows. Your shows are also, you know, so great. I mean, everything about them, the way you do your shows are the types of shows we like to listen to the most. Thank you. So we wanted to uh, tease it on your show in particular. But keeping in with the fact that we have three favorite creators that have all three been our favorite creators for years and years and years. It's Ron Randall, it's Mike Grell, and the third favorite creator of us is Mark Schultz. Okay. So we're going to be covering Xenozoic Tales. Hmm. 
Okay, interesting. That'll be cool. Yeah, I hope so. I hope everybody likes it. So you have the exclusive. You'll know about it before anyone else. And we'll make sure that when we finally announce it that we tag you and you know what's going on. Very cool. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to that one. I can attest that your shows are wonderful. And listeners, don't even take my word for it. Don't take Darren and Ruth's word for it. You can take Professor Alan Middleton's word for it because he gave them one of his coveted awards for best new podcasting this past year. And that is great praise indeed. So... Darren, Ruth, once again, it was great finally getting a chance to talk to you. I loved working with you on this episode. I'm sure that we will find a way to reconnect and talk again. Just great talking to you. Great to have you on the show at last. Thank you very much, Ryan. We sincerely appreciate it. Thank you. It was a whole lot of fun. If I did my job well, you won't notice that Darren and Ruth and I had a ton of technical problems while recording our segment together. Some nasty weather along the East Coast played havoc with our Skype connection. A few bits of conversation were garbled beyond recovery, and one or two discussion topics were skipped over purely because I was frustrated with the Skype call. Being the wonderful and professional couple that they are, the Sutherlands offered to re-record any of the conversation to make the episode as good as possible, but I assured them I would make it sound great. I hope that wasn't a lie. All the same, Darren and Ruth recorded a brief additional comment about Mike Grell and Neil Adams' work on the character, and I will play that for you now. So we've been fortunate to get to hear both Neil Adams and Mike Grell talk about their time on Green Arrow. I remember that Neil Adams was especially proud of his time on the series with Dennis O'Neill because they did socially relevant stories, and that meant a lot to him. Mike Grell had left DC in the early 80s to do independent comics like John Sable, and at some point DC was really interested in getting him to come back and work for them. So they offered him the option, the choice to work on whatever title that he wanted, and he grabbed up Green Arrow because... That was always a favorite of his, going back to when he was a fan of Robin Hood himself. Yeah, a really nice story. He used to play Robin Hood with his bow and arrow. During our conversation, I went on a bit of a rant about Oliver Queen that got scrambled by the technical problems. For me, Green Arrow is one of the most frustrating superheroes in DC's pantheon. On the one hand, I love him because he's so unique. Nobody else at DC ever really looked like him, and nobody else ever really talked like him either. The hard-traveling heroes era didn't just reimagine Green Arrow's look, it revolutionized the whole idea of the character. Denny O'Neill gave Oliver Queen a personality at a time when the rest of the Justice League didn't have any. Suddenly, Green Arrow became more than just a crime fighter, but a champion for social justice. The problem is, not all of those stories have held up over the decades because the political landscape and the language has changed. So, as often as not, Ali's bleeding heart liberalism in the Bronze Age comes off as really rather annoying. Being the first member of the JLA with a real distinct voice made him a standout character and a great foil for the others. But in retrospect, a lot of times he just sounds like a contrarian and a whiner. At times, I just want Green Arrow to shut up. 
But the thing is, I don't want him to shut up. I don't want him to be the brooding urban Avenger. That's Batman's jam. That's what I didn't like about the first couple episodes of Arrow, the TV series. Like I said, the show found its identity when they gave Ali a supporting cast, when they put him on a team. I want him on a team. He's a great addition to the Justice League because he brings something to that group that nobody else has. I want him to talk. I want him to laugh. I want him to be an adventuring, swashbuckling, kind of a braggart even. And he can be political too. He can be a voice for social change and activism without using white guilt to shame the Justice League into doing something. But I've so rarely ever seen him straddle that line effectively, and that's why I say he's such a frustrating character. A few other notes... There was something else I didn't bring up with Darren and Ruth, and this was not the fault of the bad connectivity. This was just me being stupid and forgetting. I completely forgot to mention the incredible contribution of George Papp, the original artist on Green Arrow. Papp created the character with Mort Weisinger and would continue to draw Green Arrow for almost 20 years. We talked so much about Neil Adams and Mike Grell and other more recent artists, it was criminal that we forgot to mention Pap, who drew amazing stories of Green Arrow in the 1940s and 50s. And then the last thing before we move on, I want to reiterate my recommendation for Green Arrow Year One, written by Andy Diggle with art by Jock. It's phenomenal. One of the best superhero origin stories ever. It's a little decompressed, I'll admit, but it's also nearly a perfect blueprint for how a Green Arrow movie could be made. If you haven't read it, you gotta check it out. Okay, that's it. I am going to play some more promos, and then after that, J. David Weeder is going to help me uncover the secret origin of Speedy. Don't go away. Xenozoic Xenophiles. A fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. Okay, doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please, call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now, Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the... 
time to check out Dave's Daredevil podcast because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil podcast every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. knocking at my cellar door I love you baby can I have some more Ooh, the damage done I hit the city and I lost my band I watched the needle take another man gone gone We're back with the origin of Green Arrow's kid sidekick, Roy Harper, better known, at least at the time of this issue, as Speedy. And joining me for this story is the host of Dave's Daredevil podcast, as well as Pad Smash, which I refuse to believe is dead. Please welcome to the show, Mr. J. David Weeder. How are you, Dave? Good, good. And Pad Smash is something that kind of, it's on an indefinite hiatus, we'll call it that. There you go. It's just unavailable. (laughs) <laughs> it was well. I'm working on that. There's a lot of back end that if you lose your website or you completely screw it up, you're going to have a few hundred hours worth of work to move all this stuff over. So, well, I've got to pull uh, the curtain back a little bit and give our listeners a, a bit of the secret behind this episode. I first asked Dave to be part of the Secret Origins podcast back in February of 2015, well over a year ago, <laughs> and my hope was for him to be my guest on the Captain Marvel origin. But alas, Dave never got any of my three emails because sometimes technology fails us, and I'm still convinced that you know the internet thing is all a fad anyway. I do remember getting one, and as I was telling you off the air, I tend to read things when I very first get out of bed. I check my phone, check the email, check Twitter, whatever notifications I have, which is bad because then I kind of set it down instead of responding then because I'm not clear-headed. I go about my day and then completely forget. So it's not that I'm intentionally rude or dismissive. I'm just uh, scrambled. (laughs) I like that reason. I like that explanation. And I'm going to choose to believe that's why Mark Wade hasn't gotten back to me, too. I'm going to stay in that camp as well. Yeah, but for a year, I thought you were just being rude. And I spent a whole lot of time bad-mouthing you to anyone who would listen. um, Until finally, the irredeemable shag helped us connect back in December. Uh, And while we did miss our chance to talk about Captain Marvel, at least Speedy has the same color scheme. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so there, yeah, that's a nice uh, backup plan. So, uh, And on that topic, how and when did you first discover this character? Actually, in the issue we're talking about. That's one of the things that, met, you know, when you threw, I threw out different issues to cover, and I mentioned this one, because this is where I really discovered Green Arrow and Speedy both. And the reason for that is, if, if you think about the time frame, a few years earlier, Green Arrow was a mature reader's title. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't allowed to read it, and I especially wasn't allowed to read it because on the Today Show one morning, they were talking about Green Arrow, about censorship in comics. And sure enough, my aunt, who I was living with, happened to catch that they were talking about an issue where Green Arrow's kneeling before a a crucified prostitute and then showed the superpowers Green Arrow figure. So Green Arrow was was off the table for me for a long time. (laughs) Was this right around the time that the books were coming out? Was this in like 88, 89? 
it would have been a little bit before 87. So it was well, when Mike, yeah, Mike yeah. Rell was really moving along with that. When and the series started. When the series, right yeah, the series started. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Green Arrow was off the table. Um, I'd, I'd read some Teen Titans and heard mention of Speedy, which I assumed was something similar to Kid Flash. Mm-hmm. Nope. So actually getting this issue and at that point, it, I guess it had been a little bit more lax. Nobody was paying attention. I was spending the night at my aunt's and read this, staying up all night waiting for <laughs> the 6.30 a.m. showing of the Superman uh, cartoon from Ruby Spears. <laughs> so sleep deprived, I would literally stay up all night because I had no alarm clock in that room. And I read this issue and reread it. So this was this was my beginning with these characters. Wow. But but Secret Origins was always good at introducing me to a lot of characters. Like it's how I discovered the Creeper and uh, Alan Scott Green Lantern. And, and that's really how I got into the JSA was through this series. So that's why I think it's a special series, because it's a great introduction to a lot of different characters and concepts. I'm trying to remember. And I think one of the few DC books that I was reading in the 90s was Green Arrow. But this was towards the tail end of Grell's run and even right around the time that Chuck Dixon was coming on the book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know really Speedy from that, and I I wasn't reading Teen Titans at the time or anywhere around there, so I think it was probably in the mid-2000s I started going back into DC's back catalog, and you know, mentioning Darwin Cook has just recently passed away at the time of this recording, when I read The New Frontier, that was the thing where after I, after I put that book down, I wanted to buy like every volume of Showcase Presents yes. that I could find <laughs> and just go back all through the Silver Age of these characters. And one of them that I got was Green Arrow, and it was all his Silver Age stuff when Speedy was a regular fixture of the book. Yep. So that might be the first time I met the character. Uh, and see, it? I've got that on my shelf now. So yeah, like you, it's, it's retroactive for me. Was, mm-hmm. And what was we're going to find out, Roy's one of the more interesting characters in the DC Universe. Yeah, he certainly got quite a history on him. Yep. And speaking of that, Speedy debuted 75 years ago in More Fun Comics issue 73 back in 1941, the same issue that saw the debut of partner and mentor Green Arrow. Yes, unlike the other famous sidekicks like Robin and Kid Flash, Speedy came ready-made when Green Arrow first burst onto the scene. After that, he has pretty much the same publication as Green Arrow throughout the Golden and Silver Ages, appearing in more fun and leading comics simultaneously, then popping up in World's Finest and then Adventure Comics. He teamed up with the Teen Titans a couple times in issues 4 and 11 of their book, before finally joining the team as Aqualad's replacement in Teen Titans 19. He stayed with the Teen Titans until their series was cancelled with issue 53 in 1978. However, his most famous appearance was in two issues of the historic Green Lantern Green Arrow run by O'Neill and Adams. In issues 85 and 86, published in 1971, DC presented its readers with The Shocking Truth About Drugs, when Green Arrow discovered that Speedy was addicted to heroin. Or, as Ollie put it with his usual brand of compassion, My Ward is a Junkie. After that, Roy appeared in Action Comics 436, where he joined a rock band called Great Frog that was secretly smuggling drugs across the country. Green Arrow helped Speedy break the drug operation, but the rift between the two archers only grew. After that, he appeared in the three-issue run of Jimmy Olsen backup strips from Superman Family 192 through 194. These stories featured the Newsboy Legion and the Guardian, also known as Jim Harper, 
I haven't read these stories, but I'm assuming this is where the connection between Roy Harper and Jim Harper was made. After all, how many Harpers can there be in the world? <laughs> Speedy was not part of the original New Teen Titans roster, but he would eventually appear in roughly a dozen issues, whether it was part of the original run or the retitled Tales of the Teen Titans or the Baxter series. During this era, readers learned that Roy had worked undercover for the Central Bureau of Intelligence. On one of these secret agent missions, he fell in love with the criminal assassin known as Cheshire. He left her rather than turn her into the authorities, but didn't know at the time that he'd knocked her up. At first, Cheshire wanted to punish Roy for abandoning her with his child, but eventually she'd just turned the tables on him, handing her daughter Leanne over to Roy so Cheshire could go about killing people the way she liked. Throughout the 1990s and into the 2000s, Roy Harper started a new team of Titans and dropped his speedy nickname in favor of the more extreme Arsenal. After Infinite Crisis, he joined the Justice League of America as Red Arrow, which probably should have been his codename all along, and yet for some reason no one likes that name. Later, during the Cry for Justice miniseries, Roy got his arm cut off by the villain Prometheus, and his daughter was killed during an attack on Star City. After that, Roy relapsed into his old drug habits and became a murderous vigilante, working alongside his ex-baby mama Cheshire. In the New 52, Roy became even less likable when, in his very first appearance in Red Hood and the Outlaws, he needed to be rescued by Jason Todd, and then immediately turned around and slept with Jason's girlfriend Starfire. He might be going by Arsenal again in the current DC Universe, but honestly, who gives a damn at this point? <laughs> Did I miss anything important? No, you hit some of the major – yeah, I can't think of anything specific that was missed. That was Those were the big major points. All right. Okay, let us dive into this story. The Secret Origin of Speedy, also called The Kid That Couldn't Shoot Straight, is written by Elliot S. Magan and illustrated by John Koch or Koch or Cook. I've actually heard that name pronounced all three ways. With inks by John Nyberg, letters by Tim Harkins, and colors by Helen Vesick. Roy Harper is home with his infant daughter, Leanne, looking at himself on the cover of Newsmakers magazine. The mag did a cover story on Roy, chronicling his life as a kid's sidekick of Green Arrow, to government agent and single father. Roy isn't disappointed in what the magazine printed, but rather what they left out of the story. He sets the record straight for his daughter, starting with his childhood on a Navajo reservation. The medicine chief, Brave Bow, raised him after Roy's father died saving Brave Bow from a fire. As a boy, Roy didn't think he fit in with either the white or Indian communities, so he dedicated his energy to training his body so that, according to Roy, by the time he was seven years old, he had the strength and stamina of a high school football player. One day, Green Arrow visited the reservation to preside over the Navajo tribe's archery contest. Roy, of course, had heard of the Emerald Archer, but what he didn't realize was that Green Arrow had also heard of Roy. During the competition, Ali sabotaged Roy's shots, making it appear that the boy was a piss-poor archer. Hence, Green Arrow dubbed him the kid that couldn't shoot straight. Now, in case you're thinking Green Arrow is being a total dick, well, yes, Green Arrow has always been kind of a total dick. But there was a method to his dickishness this time. Bravebow was dying and wanted Green Arrow to adopt Roy, so they concocted a public demonstration where Roy would appear to suck at archery so no one would ever suspect him of being Green Arrow's new partner. That seems like a pretty harsh and publicly humiliating plot to preserve a secret identity, but again, it's Ollie. Roy flashes forward and tells Leanne about life with Oliver Queen and their totally hetero weight training sessions. 
They hear about some criminal activity on the radio and race into action as Green Arrow and Speedy. Ali demonstrates Aeromobile's sweet ejection seat by launching his underage sidekick from the speeding car toward the river where the crooks are escaping on a speedboat. Ali does this, by the way, without Roy's consent or foreknowledge. Skipping ahead in time again, Roy tells his daughter about the real warts in his life story. After Ali lost all of his money, Green Arrow hit the road with Green Lantern and Black Canary. Roy had a harder time adjusting to life without millions of dollars, and turned to drugs to soothe his depression. After he's busted using heroin, Green Arrow helps Roy kick his habit, by which I mean Ali yells at Roy and Dinah helps him recover. Thank you. <laughs> Sometime later, while working undercover for the CBI, Roy met Leanne's mother, the infamous assassin named Cheshire. Roy was supposed to bring her down, instead he fell in love and slept with her. He was supposed to turn her over to the authorities, instead he ran away, not realizing she was pregnant until she later confronted Roy with the Teen Titans. Now, Roy Harper is a single parent with no idea what to tell his daughter about his life once she's developed enough of her brain that she can actually understand everything he's been talking about. He decides the best thing to do will be to tell her the truth, because he always shoots straight. What did you think of the story? This got me hooked on this character. It got me invested because if you look at kind of the Teen Titans, you have Dick Grayson, who's the successful brother. You have Wally West, who's kind of the blue collar, but, you know, he's respectable. And then you have Roy, who's the basically the cautionary tale. <laughs> if there's something that could be done wrong, Roy's kind of done it. <laughs> yeah, this is where I kind of run into conflict in my sort of head canon because in my mind, I try to preserve these characters in kind of their iconic super friend state. Mm. I have to sort of make allowances where I understand that, you know, characters age and they mature, but I don't want them to get too far afield. And Roy is like this character that just stands like, just like bright, shiny alarms and whistles just kind of stands out. He's like, no, his life experiences are too much and too extreme to kind of fit in that. He's lived like three superhero lifetimes based on just the experiences that he's had. True. Um, but they're, I mean, he, let's be honest. He started out as a Robin clone. Mm -hmm. He was intended to be, I mean, just like Green Arrow was intended to be Green Batman with a gimmick. And the fact that they were able to craft something out of both of those characters that still lasts that's saying something. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Golden Age, I think the art by George Papp was really strong in those early mm -hmm. Green Arrow stories, but the characters didn't have much personality. No. And it certainly wasn't until much later in his career that he got a life and he kind of became something interesting. And boy, did they, <laughs> did they really go nuts with that. Yeah, they did. But I, was, I was glad that you pointed out that it's kind of grazed over that Dinah's the one that really took over Roy's recovery. Mm-hmm. And that kind of jumps a little bit ahead, but that was one of my big notes is that she was incredibly important. And it seems like in the 80s and part of the 90s, Dinah was overlooked a lot. Yeah. This is just another example. And being a Black Canary fan like me, mm -hmm. who has a Twitter handle, Black Canary fan, despite them making her a founding Avenger post-crisis, uh, it, it kills me because like she was taken off of the Avengers so that Mike Grell could use her in Green Arrow. I don't know why I called Black Canary an Avenger twice, but of course I meant the Justice League. Sorry. 
And as much as I liked what Mike Grell did with Green Arrow, I don't like what he did with Dinah. And I felt like she got so marginalized during that time period. But yeah, I mean, she does have this big sister-slash-motherly relationship with Roy, uh, and that she took care of him. And we hardly get much of that. It's, It's even kind of... It's in the narration here on page 11. He's like, I hear they insisted on helping me. I understand they were very brave. I read they saved my life, and I don't doubt it. I wouldn't know. I don't remember anything from that year. I was dead then. I was a junkie. It's like, ah, you might have heard. uh, Who's telling you that they were very brave and that they helped you? Yeah. I was kind of confused when I first read the story. I wasn't sure about Roy's biological father, his his actual father. And later I would find out that his, his dad was a a forest ranger. I thought he was a medic. For, but yeah, for, a forest ranger would seem correct. There, yeah, or there was park some, ranger. a park ranger or something by this Indian reservation. And that's why he was there when there was this fire and he, he was saving some of them. But then he – and then there's a line there when his father races into the fire – Roy says they never even found his teeth. Yeah. Isn't that the setup for every like re- like missing person <laughs> returns? Like really that's that sounds if you've read enough comics or like you really watched any TV show, isn't that your clue that they're not really dead? That's shorthand for they're coming back later, we just don't know when. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I don't remember his father coming back. I don't I don't think so. No. So he's raised by Bravebo and Bravebo knows that he's getting sick so he concocts this arrangement with Ollie to adopt him and take him on as his ward. But, man, this story really goes out of its way to make Green Arrow an unlikable character. Yeah. And their relationship is kind of superficial. Like, the the, the partnership. And it's kind of funny, like, after the drug incident, do Roy and Ollie still have a relationship? Or are they just strange, like, ships passing in the night? They have a, a slight relationship. I don't think it ever came back to a place, a good place, until Meltzer's Justice League when Roy became Green Arrow, or Red Arrow, mm-hmm. which I liked the name. I liked that first story arc. I was so happy to see Roy kind of step up to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I think Meltzer does a great job with setup, and I, I agree. I really liked the, that first arc. Uh, the payoff sometimes not so much. Mm-hmm. And yeah, now that I think about it, you're right. And I think maybe because he had that short, like six issue run on Green Arrow right after Kevin Smith, but before Judd Winnick. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking he might have paved the way for their reconciliation during that time period. I don't remember them being complete strangers, yeah. but they weren't, you know, they weren't close at all. Mm-hmm. Kind of like people passing each other. Yes, I know you. I just don't necessarily want to invest time or effort mm-hmm. in repairing this. Because it comes back to Dinah being there and Ollie not. And if you read those, Ollie just was like, oh, he's a junkie. Dinah, take care of him. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not quite that simple, but at the same time, it's pretty much what happened. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the art in the story? Green Arrow looks good. Roy in his costume looks good. Leon looks like a hug-a-bunch. <laughs> From panel to panel, she does. It's- yeah. Especially on the last page. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> There's, it's very cartoonish the way she's drawn. It's adorable, but it's, it's like, yeah, I think I played with that doll or something. When I was a kid. <laughs> and see, I don't, I don't remember this artist on anything else off the top of my head. Um, according to Mike's Amazing World, he's got all of five credits. Okay. Um, so- starting with this one. This is his first credit there. 
and then two more issues of Secret Origins, um, and then the Flash annual number three, and an issue of Manhunter, all of them published within a year of each other. So he was just kind of a short-lived, short-lived career for this person. And, and actually, I see a lot of potential there. I think it could have he could have been very good, mm-hmm. and it could come down to the inker as well. True. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not bad. And I, no. I, I'd like to compare it to the later issues of Secret Origins when he does towards the end of the run and see what else it looks like if there's. There are moments, like the Silver Age portions look fantastic. It's the backgrounds that kind of throw me off. They're off somehow, and I can't put my finger on it. During They're the- detailed. In, in, well, no, I mean, it, what, like, for example, Roy's apartment. Wow, this is really detailed. It looks right, but what doesn't feel right about the – maybe it's the colors? I'm not sure. But something doesn't quite seal itself. I think it's the proportion, like the anatomy, like – Roy looks like a fat junkie. Yeah. <laughs> How often does that happen? I think most heroin addicts lose weight. It's a pretty good diet plan, I hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a lot of sweat in this issue. Not just the totally hetero workout, but Roy's sweating quite a bit as he's shooting arrows. And I just thought of this. Why is Roy in his costume when he's reading the magazine to his daughter? Maybe, maybe it's comfortable. Maybe <laughs> it's, 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 I mean, it looks, maybe he just got off of work, but, or he's about to go out after she goes to bed, but. I kind of picture that. Yeah, yeah. he came home after doing his speedy thing, probably picking Leanne up at the daycare, and he's checking out this magazine he picked up <laughs> that's based on him. So, uh, Something that I've noticed, and it started last issue uh, in one panel of Dr. Light's origin, and we've seen it now in both of the stories in this issue. Post-Crisis, they omit Ollie's Golden Age costume. Like yeah. right, right from the beginning, he's in his like Neil Adams redesigned costume. In the Doctor Light origin, there was a panel of him with the Justice League from an issue. It was like a, an homage to a cover where he would have been in his original costume, but they show him as the redesigned Neil Adams look. And in this story, in both uh, Roy's origin and in Green Arrow's origin, when he's first starting out, he's in the redesigned look, goatee, and yep. Was that just to sort of minimize the distinction between? That's my because that's my uh, best because at the time he's he's in the Mike Grell redesign the sort of hooded you know Robin Hood look yep which we have on the cover of this mm-hmm. I guess that's because he now has three looks you have the the golden early Silver Age version the mm-hmm. clean cut plain version the Neil Adams and then the Mike Grell version so this is just kind of I guess truncating the timeline yeah. And I'm fine with that. I, I mean, it, it makes sense, and I understand the want to do that. Except the Longbow Hunters and the Mike Grell run established that he was older. Like, he was supposed to be one of the oldest of the heroes. Like, he had, like, five years at least on Superman and Batman. One of my only other art notes that I that really kind of jumped out at me, on page 12, the last panel, when he's in bed with Cheshire. Mm-hmm. How big is that bed? That, I remember thinking that. That looks like uh, more than a king-size bed, that's for sure, because a king-size is roughly – it's like a square is what it is. That's like Jabba the Hutt-size bed. <laughs> like their wingspan, like arms out, would only come to halfway across the bed, if that. I do remember being stricken by that image because, I mean, he's having sex. Superheroes don't do that. And, and bear in mind, in 1989, I'm 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. So this was a revelation. Because I had seen, you know, everything up to that point, I had seen Lois Lane curse and things like that. But this this was an age where I'm starting to pick up on innuendo and hear something that's very blatant. Yeah. That Roy's, you know, he's used drugs. He's he's had sex. Mm. He's and it, it, he's such a flawed character that he, you know, when he gets up and he's doing things well, you kind of want to cheer him on. He's his arc from the O'Neill Adams era 
is very much like real life, you know, drug addicts. Mm-hmm. They're clean. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy with my sobriety. Oh, I've relapsed. Yeah. And that's why it broke my heart when, you know, post, uh, what was it? The Prometheus? Uh, yeah. Cry for justice. Fall of, fall of, yeah. Cry for justice. Yeah. That everything went so badly for him. I think maybe more than the drug addiction thing, I think my favorite part about his history is his connection to Cheshire. I just think that's fascinating that he fell in love with a villain and he knew that she was wrong and he, he refused to stay with her. But he was weak enough in that moment that he actually slept with her and that's something that he can't walk away from. He can't ignore that because there is physical evidence that now he has, yeah. to, <laughs> he has to own that for the rest of his life. Or until, again, events of that series where Liam yeah. was killed. But yeah, well, even I, then, that's that's yeah, still the rest of his life because that's going to leave marks. Or until everything gets rebooted. Yeah, and again, taking it back to Dinah, there was an, an issue, uh, run of the Birds of Prey book when Gail Simone was writing when Black Canary is fighting Cheshire, and there's a lot of animosity between them over Roy. And Jade kind of hates Dinah because she knows that Dinah was there and helped Roy and mm-hmm. feels a kind of jealousy over that. And I thought that was fascinating. And Cheshire also, I, I like the character. I think she's she's sexy. She's cool. She's one of the few George Perez costume designs that I really, really like. <laughs> um, Did you watch Young Justice? I've only seen a few episodes of the first season. That's one of those like projects where eventually I will get to it. But I think I've seen the first five. Okay, I don't want to spoil too much, but the they do play with this arc. Okay, they play with the idea of Roy uh, having met Cheshire, and they bring I, it, his arc is incredible in that show. Hmm. But I think I'm on record as saying I think Young Justice is probably the best depiction of the DC universe on screen. Really? Better than Justice League Unlimited? Because that's Yep. I mean Justice League Unlimited is phenomenal. This is a notch better because it's 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 an ongoing story. Both seasons have an ongoing story and they they connect. Hmm. And you can tell at the beginning if you rewatch it, as I recently did, you could tell at the beginning they have everything planned. Because hmm. they're dropping hints left and right and the rewatch was almost better than the first watch. Oh. Except that the series finale usually makes me cry. I won't say why, but it gets me. Anything else about this story specifically? No, I mean, again, it, it hooked me on this character. Um, so I, he's a character that, you know, I've invested in uh, not a phenomenal amount uh, over the years. I will check into books. I just want to see how Roy's doing. Mm. I watched him go to Arsenal. I'd never seen the character before, but he fascinated me because it was one of the first flawed heroes I ever connected to. Because even with Daredevil, when I got into Daredevil, yes, the concept, you know, is that he's his blindness is flawed. But he was not as flawed as Roy. This oh. is somebody that didn't make the right choices. Yeah. And, and he, but he, he keeps coming back and pushing through. He's like us. Agreed. Yeah. My overall thoughts, I mean, I, the art was iffy sometimes, but overall I thought, I thought it was strong in places where it should have been strong. There were some decisions like the pages where Roy is on drugs. The depiction of him just doesn't look right. It looks really off model. Mm-hmm. I mean, he looks out of shape. He doesn't look good. He looks like crap, which, okay, if that's, I, I guess that's a, a solid decision, but not authentically, I guess. The story is good. I, I think it does certainly give you the long, complicated history of this character, and it's a fascinating study. But Megan kind of gets to the heart of it because mm-hmm. it's Roy talking to his daughter. And this is a, you know, somebody who's recovered thinking, how am I going to explain this to my little girl? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine that kind of struggle. How do you explain some of the things you did in your youth to your child? Right. 
The one question I kind of had coming out of this was, and I know Magan has written a lot of Green Arrow, and from this story, I didn't think that he really liked Green Arrow. And maybe that's just projecting on some of Roy's attitude, because, I don't know, like some of the narrative captions in this and like just the, the, the things that he focuses on, I really get a sense that Roy and Ali are not in a good place, and they there's nothing between them anymore. And there's kind of like, well, this should have been an important character partnership. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel that way in this moment. And is that is that Magan writing that opinion through Roy, or is that just his actual author's voice coming through? Wasn't Magan the first one to really start putting the rift between Roy and Ollie in the backups, or did O'Neill Adams do that first? I'm trying to get the story beats right, but... I can't remember. I mean, I know... I, I think, think, well, yeah, because the rip Magan, would have started with Magan. Because I think then, he wrote that, yeah, I think he wrote the story, I think it was in Action Comics, when mm-hmm. Roy is going undercover to bust the rock band, and Ali thinks that he's relapsed, and he's working with them, and they're drug smugglers, and he doesn't trust him. And, yeah, by the end of that, they work together to bring down these smugglers, but it's clear. It's like Roy kind of puts it in his face, you didn't trust me to do this. That's the one I remember, yeah. yeah. No, that partnership is is broken. Yeah. I never thought about how broken it was and how big a deal it was when Meltzer, you know, had Roy step up mm-hmm. and Oliver's the one that gives him the red arrow costume. He's not man enough to come and, you know, show Roy personally, but that's the way Oliver is. He's not a good he's not good with emotions. No. And he's certainly not a good ward or a good uh, adoptive parent. <laughs> I mean, say what you want about Batman. Dick Grayson came up okay. And so did Tim Drake. Yeah. Jason Todd, well, you can't win them all. But hey, that was a popular decision. Yep. <laughs> we voted. One finger pointing out, uh, three pointing back. What about the character in general? What about Speed, like going from here before or after? Did you have like stories that you liked with the character? or? Well, again, the, the Justice League arc was something that was near and dear because I liked seeing him ascend. Some of the Titans stuff got a little sketchy there. Yeah. But if I remember correctly, he was on Outsiders, which was a Judd Winnick book. Mm-hmm. And I guess it got taken over later. But when Judd Winnick was doing that, it was basically Nightwing and, and this sort of latter-day Titans. Mm-hmm. I liked Roy kind of being Dick's right-hand man. That Dick has enough trust in Roy now that he can put him in, you know, somewhat in charge. So I remember reading that and really enjoying that first year and change of that book. And Roy was heavily involved. Since the new 52, the trucker hat Roy, I'm out. I, I've got no love for it. <laughs> I think back on episode 13 of the show, I was talking to Tom Panaris about the Nightwing origin. And somehow, I think we started talking about Red Hood and the Outlaws. Because when the new 52 launched, I bought all of the issue ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went through like the discount comic book service like special bundle where I got every issue one. And that first issue was so bad, and people made a big deal about it because Starfire is sleeping with everyone, and they were like, Scott Lobdell is writing her as this vacant slut who's just like throwing, giving her her body to whoever. It was an awful presentation of a strong female character. I was like, you know what? That's not you. (laughs) But but I was also like, you know what? All of your points are valid, but the men in the story aren't coming off as any better because. Roy is saved by Jason and within the same issue goes back and sleeps with Jason's girlfriend and Jason doesn't care because he's not that into Starfire even though he's been sleeping with her for however long so it's like nobody in this book is likable why would you want to follow these characters 
I was like, yeah, there there is something to the fact that these guys have had screwed up lives, but give me something to root for. Give me some hope of redemption. Which is kind of a theme for the New 52 in general, which is coming to an end as we record this. So It sure is. As we record this, the Rebirth special went on the stands today. Roy does appear with a trucker hat, so it doesn't look like that's going away. But <laughs> <sighs> Another carrot topped character is coming back, which is near and dear to my heart. So, Other recommendations for the character... Um, the Nightwing trade paperback, it's called Nightwing Old Friends, New Enemies. It collects his stories from Action Comics Weekly. But even though it says Nightwing, they are equally, if not more so, about Speedy. And this is where we find, like, this is after he's found out about his daughter. Um, there's a Cheshire connection. This is kind of like the first time that they're confronting her after everything has kind of come out and been made public. So uh, those were pretty interesting stories. And also just part of as the research, I went and read uh, Titans issue 20 and 21. I think that was from the Baxter series, uh, which is where Cheshire revealed that she had had the baby with Roy. The stories were okay, but the art by Eduardo Barreto was very nice. And mm -hmm. again, she looked good. <laughs> that that Latter-day Titan stuff is kind of hit or miss, mm -hmm. story-wise. Art-wise, typically it was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Final thoughts about the character? Anything else? I, I think if we get a good writer on him... This could be a character that, as Brad Meltzer showed, could be one of the shining lights of the DCU, except that they just keep wanting to crap on him. Yeah. Because that, it's kind of – it's the Daredevil syndrome. Well, that seemed to work before. Let's do it again and again and again. So it's – I think he's, he's very underutilized and very underrealized at this point. Do you think he has – or I guess what might be his niche? Where does the character belong? Because I don't think he belongs with Green Arrow. No. I, don't, I don't think Green Arrow is in any way serviced by having a sidekick with the exact same gimmick as him. I don't think Ali needs a partner, and I don't think Speedy really benefits from that either. So I think the character is best served on a Teen Titans type of thing or some other kind of outro group. Where... He's very much a team player. He's a character yeah. you want who doesn't necessarily support his own project. Put him on a team or mentoring the next generation of Titans. Mm -hmm. You've got gold. Yeah, I think because when you put him on the team, you contrast all of his screw-ups against mm -hmm. somebody like a Robin or a Kid Flash, somebody who is more of the golden boy, the kid that you expect that you look up to, then as a foil, all of Roy's inadequacies and deficiencies shine brighter and make him look more interesting. Well, that and if he's mentoring... It's not from a do as I say, you know, mm -hmm. not as I do. This is these are the mistakes I made. This is the mindset that led me to bad places. Well, it's what you said at the beginning of the episode. It's the cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. Yep. He's the walking warning. So I would if it were me, I would write it would be a whole new original team of, of Titans of some sort that they would be the next generation. And he's just trying to mentor them and keep them on the straight and narrow. That would be the you know, if DC Comics is listening. That's my pitch. Hmm. What does that remind me of? Sort of like when Hawkeye was running the Thunderbolts, or maybe? Sort of like that. Or I, I was thinking more, there was a, a 90s Teen Titans that had a younger, uh, they'd been, uh, basically the Adam had been DH. Okay, I was going to wonder mentor. if that was the Ray Palmer. Yep, with Argent and, and Risk, and etc. I would do a book kind of like that with Roy as kind of the cornerstone. I would have Nightwing basically put Dick, uh, put Roy in that position. So for him, you know, Roy's also like, I don't want to let my best friend down. Hmm. Yeah. And there you have quite a bit of – you've already got basically half your drama right there. Yeah. Not to mention the, the original characters. Did you have uh, – we talked before the, the episode about the Arrow TV show. What did you think about the character on Arrow? Uh, again, underused. 
Arrow, I like it a lot, but I don't compare it to the Green Arrow comics anymore. Mm -hmm. Where the Flash draws pretty well from the comics, give or take, Arrow just kind of decided to go its own direction. And Roy was had a lot of potential that never got utilized because they wanted to put Dia in that costume. And the actor just didn't want to stick around either, so... Honestly, sort of like I was saying, giving Ali a sidekick, I think I kind of like Thea more in that role. I'll give you um, that, yeah. I thought the actor was cool who played Roy. I thought he had enough natural charisma that I would see him in other things. Um, and if he came back for another project in their new DC multiverse, like if he joined... Let me put it this way. I would rather see him on Legends of Tomorrow than Captain Cold and Heatwave. Um, uh, I, I know, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> I, at least- yeah, I know there is a large set of the fan base that loves those characters, that loves Captain Cold and Heatwave. I do not like them. I like the characters. I don't like the way they're done on the show. I love um, Captain Cold, Heatwave. I could do without completely. I, and I, li- I normally like Dominic Purcell. I, this role is just ridiculous. I just, something about the actor who plays Captain Cold, I don't like it, and I don't think he's the right fit for the character. And maybe I just have two... Like my expectations for that character are different. Hmm. Like I see, I see Captain Cold as somebody who would be in Robert De Niro's crew in the movie Heat. <laughs> there you go. Like, you- like in the scene when they're at the diner and Robert De Niro like slams the guy's head into the counter or something or the table, and some like trucker or whatever like looks over like what's going on, and Tom Sizemore just stares at him until the guy <laughs> looks away. That. That's Captain Cold. He's basically the- a Tom Sizemore type. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could see that. I could see that really, really well. <laughs> oh. And I love that movie, so. Yeah, so. Uh, anyway, once we're talking about heat, we might have gone too far afield. Yeah, we've gone, we've gone afield again. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, final thoughts. I, I think you made good points. If there's a place for Roy, I, I like that. Put him on a team with Titans or Outsiders type of characters. Give him something to work for to prove himself. I, I would like to see that. I, he's definitely, like we said... He has lived many lifetimes worth for an average superhero in terms of the mistakes he's made and, and how he's come back from those mistakes. Yep. So, Well, Dave, thank you very, very much for being part of this episode. Where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you in podcasting or the internet or wherever? You can always go over to twotruefreaks.com where you can find Dave's Daredevil podcast. Just look for it on the main page. And otherwise, I'm normally right here in Missouri. <laughs> Go to Missouri, you'll find them. Yeah, everybody knows me. Great. Well, one more time, thank you very much for being part of it. Oh, thank you for having me. This is fun. Secret Origins Episode 37 received new Twitter favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Ange, Captain Marvel at Captain Marvel 75, Chris Sheehan, Cindy Womack, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Dan at Dinosaur No One, Dr. G Nerdologist, Earth 2 Chris, Film and Water Podcast, that's Rob Kelly, who said issue 37 was his favorite Secret Origins cover. The Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks, Jeffrey Brown, Jim Bow, JLI Podcast, Joe Slab, Joss Lou, Martin Gray, Matthew Thomas Cody, Rick G. at Degenerate Boy, Siskoid, Sinister Purpose, Sin, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles.
New Facebook likes and shares came from Aaron Head Moss, Abel Padilla, Al Sedano, Anthony Durso, Ben Days of Our Lives, a Comics Nostalgia podcast, Christopher Ouellette, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, Gotham Shioran, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Jason Pope, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jonathan Brown, Keith G. Baker, The Lantern Cast, Martin Gray, Matthew Cody, Nicholas Prom, Richard Field, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Shag, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, The Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Terry Tildesley, Tim Knight, Tim Wallace, Warlord Worlds, and Van Z. If you promoted this podcast on social media and I forgot to read your name, that was an unintentional oversight. I'm sorry, just let me know and I will correct the mistake next time. And as you ought to know, you can leave comments on Facebook and Twitter, but you can also leave a comment on the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Once again, I got a bunch of great comments after episode 37, which covered the origin of the Legion of Substitute Heroes, as well as the villain Dr. Light. I'm not reading entire comments, just selected bits, but you can read the whole conversation at the Fire and Water Podcast Network website. The first comment came from Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Martin says, I've loved the subs in both moods, the earnest little heroes who could, and the daffy defenders of the 30th century. There's no problem reconciling the two. Sometimes people, heck, life itself, gets silly. Their five years later freedom fighter status, coming comparatively soon after the more light-hearted tales, made them seem all the more impressive. And as offensive powers go, Infectious Lass has one of the best. If you're throwing diseases at folk, who cares if you can't conjure up specific bugs? Yeah, I don't remember if we mocked Infectious last last episode. I honestly don't know much about her, but I think the power, if properly used, could be extremely effective. And Martin added, I hope you do get the current Secret Six, Ryan. The Ralph and Sue story is touching, and the moment when Elongated Man finally returns saw me tearing up. Gail Simone, Tom Durenick, Dale Eaglesham, and company are producing a superb book. Heck, the cover to number four alone should have convinced everyone to try it. Well, I do love all of the creators that Martin just mentioned, so I guess I'll have to put that book on the list of things that I'd need to read once this series is finished. Next comment came from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary and the speculative Supergirl Martian Manhunter podcast. Manhunters are from Mars, girls are from Krypton. Ange said, Like Mart, I like the subs in all of their incarnations, although the straight slapstick version by Giffen in DC Comics Presents and the special is my least favorite. I'm all for the plucky underdogs. Their five years later versions is where they really shine, getting an ovation from the world after the Dominators are kicked off the planet. Funny that Giffen was the creative force behind that incarnation, since he was the one that made the the joke that they were at this time. As for favorite storyline, I like that they help an insane Brainiac 5 defeat the seemingly undefeatable League of Super Assassins in Superboy and the Legion issue 254. I will also add that Jeff Johns and Gary Frank do make them a mix of humor and capability in their Legion story in action comics. I mean, they arrive to fight the evil Justice League in a short school bus. The image speaks for itself. Uh, Michelle Fief posted a link to the Legion of Substitute podcasters when they interviewed Mark Wade, and he talked about Ty Templeton working on the sub's origin. You can find that link on the website. It's a good interview. 
Rift said, my only experience with Dr. Light before picking up this issue was identity crisis, and I don't know if Dr. Light could ever come back from that. Well, that was a popular question in all of the feedback I got. Was Dr. Light irrevocably broken by identity crisis, or could he be used in future stories without the stain of that story distracting both the authors and the readers? Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast and Power Records took up one side. There's no coming back from Identity Crisis. Nothing against those who truly like that series, but I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one who was turned off by it. I just can't understand these big-name creators who love their old comics so much that they have to reimagine the characters in ways their creators never intended. Go create a new book, people. Chris also mentioned, Mike Parabek is one of my all-time favorite artists. Such a talent lost way too soon. Sadly, we have to say that phrase way too often. Jeff Nettleton seconded Chris's thoughts, stating, Parabek was such a good storyteller that it's amazing it took so long for him to finally get the proper showcase with Batman Adventures. His Justice Society work was tremendous, but it was ignored. Batman the Animated Series was such a hit that Batman Adventures had a built-in audience, and it turned out to be THE Batman book of the 90s. It's such a shame that Parabek was taken so young. Rob Kelly from Pod Dylan, the flagship podcast of the Fire and Water Network, said, I loved this issue. As much as I love Roy Thomas's single-minded obsession with the golden age of comics, I thoroughly enjoyed Wade's tenure on this series, and this issue is, to me, the first issue where his presence is felt. That cover is a classic. And then Rob weighed in on the Dr. Light controversy, saying, I think I agree Dr. Light is forever tainted via his use in Identity Crisis. It would be hard for me to watch him in a comic getting his ass handed to him by Ma Hunkel or somebody for laughs after reading that series. Well, the first issue and a half. I threw Identity Crisis number two across the room midway through and never went back to it. Hey, I did that with Batman Battle for the Cowl issue two. Go figure. Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, said, Another instance of me swerving away from the pack. I much prefer the Secret Origins issues after issue 30 than those that came before. Roy ain't my boy. Know what I'm saying? Well, yes, I know what you're saying, Paul, but you gotta say it like, Now I'm saying? One word. Joe X said, My first exposure to the subs was a reprint of Adventure issue 350 and 351 where Color Kid saved Superboy and Supergirl by turning a green kryptonite cloud blue. Even as a kid, I knew that was not the way radiation worked. (laughs) I love that. Hilarious. Uh, Joe adds, Dr. Light also got a quickly retconned revamp in Underwear Unwashed, or Underworld Unleashed. Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey said, The problem with having the Legion of Substitute Heroes as plucky underdogs, especially in the early adventures of the Legion, was that they were able to save the world despite being not good enough for primetime. And so, what difference were they from the main Legion? I enjoyed the reinterpretation Johns and Frank put on them in the Action comic series, full of heart, but unfortunately likely to mess it up. That's a good point, Jimmy. I like that. Uh, And that's not the only one, because Jimmy also had a fairly interesting look at Dr. Light. I know why people put a lot of blame on what Meltzer did to make Light a credible threat once more, but it is interesting how few make mention of earlier writers like John Ostrander and Marv Wolfman, who turned Light into such a joke that they had to go the nuclear option to make him a heavy hitter once more. 
While there was some fantastic work done in the 80s and 90s, one unfortunate side effect was to make the classic villains of the Silver Age somewhat of a joke. Many of these villains, like Dr. Light, Kronos, and the Flash's rogues, were made to look incompetent or worse. It took a while for writers to make them a credible force once again, like Johns did with Sinestro and the rogues. With Dr. Light, however, they went way too far and made him too toxic to bring back anytime soon. And then Jeff Nettleton came back with, I think you could have made Dr. Light a vicious villain without resorting to rape. I also think you could achieve the aim of the story without brutally murdering Sue Dibney. Just having Light making successful attacks on JLA members ups his game and makes him credible. All he had to do was take several of them out, possibly gravely injuring them, including some of the heavy hitters. At the same time, you could have had an attack that badly injured Sue or another character to make the JLA members believe their loved ones were in danger and get the reactions that Meltzer scripted. I just think there are lines you shouldn't cross with certain characters, and the JLA are characters that I feel should be able to appeal to an audience of both children and adults. I think you can do that without brutal rape and murder. Threats of violence and danger, certainly, but keep it PG. Plenty of great adventure stories, beloved by all, fall in that area. Professor Allen from the Quarterbin Podcast and Dorkness to Light strenuously objected to our characterization of him last episode. The prof says, I was not expecting to have my reputation as a podcaster of integrity besmirched on this episode. 25 cents or under means 25 cents or under. I hardly ever cheat. And when I do, it's only to make the irredeemable one angry, so I assume that's allowed. Hey, it's encouraged, even. And Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians sided with the professor, saying, I can definitely vouch for the existence of Quarterbin Comics. I currently work at a used bookstore, and I'm in charge of the comics and graphic novel department, so they fall under my jurisdiction. I hope you guys like mid-90s Spider-Man and back issues of Brigade. I've got plenty. But Diablo Frank said, In the Houston, greater metropolitan area, I cannot find comics for less than one American dollar in specialty shops or at conventions. But I did just recently buy a 50-cent-ish at half-price books, along with a stack of dollar CDs, perfectly complemented dying mediums of decreasing novelty and desirability to anyone whose age couldn't also be described as 50-ish. I did find some dime bins a few years ago at a shop that somehow hadn't yet closed, but since has, who were as charming as Rush Limbaugh with the business sense of the He-Man Woman Haters Club. That is a distressing and sad thought, and it's as good a note as any to end this episode. Before I go, though, I wanted to mention that the first episode of Secret Origins Podcast debuted on June 1st, 2015, nearly a year ago. What am I doing to celebrate the show's one-year anniversary, you ask? Well, I'm taking the week off. There will not be a new episode next week. Instead, I'm flying out to see my brother, and we're going to honor Prince's birthday with a housequake of our own. In the meantime, I want to thank my awesome guests, J. David Weeder and Darren and Ruth Sutherland, for their appearance on this episode. Thanks, as always, to you, my listeners, and to everyone who helped promote the show on social media. Please continue to tweet and share and review the show on iTunes for your chance to win a signed copy of Secret Origins Issue 41. 
Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Don't tell me it's not-